Well, it's a great joy to be here at Compass again. Uh, it was three years ago that I was here, and uh, my goodness, your ministries are just continue to enlarge, and your impact in the area con- continues to grow, and it uh, gladdens my heart to see that. I mean, what a wonderful church uh, for the gospel to, to spread through. So praise be to God for his grace shown to you here. And thank you, Pastor Mike, for your faithfulness and your team. Uh, wonderful men that I've met on the pastoral staff here. So you folks are blessed to be here. J- Jody and I, Jody's here with me, have thought maybe we could sh- should commute from Louisville, Kentucky. Do you think so? I don't know. It's a, it's a ways to come, but uh, we would love to be a part of this church. It's a, it's a really wonderful place. And we praise the Lord that you're here. And I hope you take full advantage of what is available to you uh, through the ministries of this church. Well, this morning, it is a tremendous privilege for me to bring the word of the Lord and really in this to unpack for us this morning a portrait of the greatness and the goodness of God uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. You might want to turn there. We'll be looking there in just a few minutes. But you know, as I think about this passage, what comes to my mind is the fact that I think many, many churches across America and really around the world suffer from a problem that I've detected. I call this problem our tendency to rush to the attributes of the divine imminence. The imminence of God, meaning the nearness of God, His love and compassion, His grace and mercy, uh, His forgiveness. And, And these are wonderful attributes of God, wonderful aspects of His character that he cares for us and that he is with us, his people. But we rush to those attributes of the divine eminence. We love to talk about the love of God, but we do so by bypassing often the attributes of God's transcendence, his otherness, his greatness and glory, his power and dominion, uh, his holiness and his perfection. And really two problems result when we rush to the divine eminence and bypass transcendence. One is, we simply don't have a full view of who God is. We've really belittled him in certain ways by failing to see the greatness and glory that is his. But secondly, uh, the, the other problem is really an ironic problem in that even the attributes of divine eminence that we have rushed to embrace, we don't understand rightly If we go there first and we don't see the transcendence of God as the background then for this God who is so great and glorious, so perfect and holy, and yet, can you believe it, loves the likes of you and me? I mean, we live in an age that is marked by entitlement and self-esteem, and so we might hear the love of God and think, well, of course, of course he loves me. I mean, aren't I lovable? Oh my goodness, we need to see the holiness of God to realize how unworthy we are, how, how, how incredible it is that that God being who he is should love us. Amazing. I mean, we sing amazing grace, but I don't know that we mean it. I think sometimes we sing it, but we mean entitled grace, expected grace that saves such a worthy person like me. And so, my friends, we need to start with the transcendence of God, his otherness, greatness, glory, power, dominion, holiness, perfection, in order then to situate rightly 
these glorious attributes of his mercy and kindness to us. Well, we find in Isaiah 6, this is exactly how it works. That Isaiah's vision of God, it begins with the transcendence of God. But then it moves amazingly into the mercy and kindness of God. So I want us to see these two aspects of God and in the order in which they, they uh, uh, come to us in Isaiah 6. So let's first of all read the passage together. Uh, verses 1 to 8, if you'd like to follow along uh, in your own Bibles, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation, and then we'll look at aspects of his transcendence, aspects of his imminence in seeing who God is. Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Well, it is an amazing passage, this vision of God, and clearly it begins with the transcendent majesty of God. Let's consider some of the aspects of the transcendent majesty of God in verses 1 to 4. <coughs> Excuse me. We, notice that it begins with a statement of when this took place. In the year of King Uzziah's death. This is 740 B.C., 740 and just to situate this a bit in terms of uh, Old Testament history, this would have been just a few years before the northern kingdom was taken captive uh, by the Assyrians uh, in 722 B.C. And quite a bit longer yet before the southern kingdom would be taken captive by the Babylonians in 586. So Isaiah was prophesying at this point just prior to the... the uh, uh, the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. But he's prophesying mostly to the southern kingdom. And here he references Uzziah in the year of King Uzziah's death. It's interesting. All the kings of the north were wicked in the sight of the Lord. No exception to that. But in the south, there were some good kings, but some bad ones also. <coughs> Excuse me. And Uzziah had been overall one of the good kings of the southern kingdom. Uh, he had honored the Lord. He had supported the law, the teaching of the law. And, and God had prospered him with military successes that were really remarkable until the end of his life. Sadly, he ended badly. Uh, Uzziah went into the temple. This is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 26. He went into the temple and insisted on burning incense. And the priest told him, no, you can't 
can't do that. You're a king. You're not a priest. And of course, what's behind that is the fact that in Israel, the line of the kings came from a different tribe than the line of the priests. The line of the kings came from the, from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Judah, you might remember in Genesis 49, God told Jacob, the, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So this will be the line of the kings of Israel. But the line of the priests come from Levi, the tribe of Levi. So he's from the tribe of Judah. He's a king. He's not a priest. You shouldn't do this. Well, he did anyway. He insisted on doing it. And God struck him with leprosy right there on the spot. It's one of the times in the Bible where you realize what God can do if he chooses to bring about instant punishment to people who turn away from him. Uh, as we all know, normally he doesn't do that. He's forbearing. But indeed, sometimes he shows us uh, his hand of judgment quickly. And he did this with Uzziah. So Uzziah lived the remaining years of his life in shame away from the people, though he remained king until he died. Well, so Uzziah had a, a, a very tragic ending to his life, but remember, most of his life, he lived in faithfulness to God. And so I wonder if that opening line, in the year of King Uzziah's death, is not more than merely a historical marker, 740 B.C. I think it means something like this. In a time of great uncertainty, when we don't know who the next king is going to be, we don't know if he will be favorable to the people of God, whether he will support the law of God, whether he will be, be encouraging to the prophets of Israel, or whether he will be opposed to all of that. After all, in Judah, they've had both kinds, right? So in a time of great uncertainty, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, lofty and exalted. You get the point, don't you? No matter what happens at the earthly level, no matter what president might be elected, no matter what happens in the Supreme Court, I'm updating this a bit, as you can tell, uh, no matter what happens at the horizontal level, here's one thing that is always true. I saw the Lord seated on his throne. And indeed, this King of kings and Lord of lords reigns always despite what happens at the earthly level. So indeed, look at this vision that Isaiah has of this great king. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. So throne obviously indicates he's a king. And we see that for sure when we come down to, to verse 5 when he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So we know that the throne signifies that this is a king. And the fact that his throne chair is lofty and exalted is a symbol, is it not, of his greatness and glory, of his majesty and his, his supremacy over all. I mean, interestingly, we're not told how his throne chair is lofty and exalted, maybe on some pedestal that was built up high, maybe suspended from midair. But in whatever case, this throne chair is lofty and exalted, signifying his reign over all. I mean, as we see the seraphim proclaim in verse 3, we'll see this in just a moment, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth, his domain, his dominion, the one over which he reigns as king. You know, there have been a number of human kings who wanted to have control over the whole earth. I'm sure Napoleon had, want, had wished that or, or Hitler wanted that. But no earthly king has ever been able to say, the whole earth displays my glory. But this king does. 
And indeed, he is over all as the supreme king of kings and lord of lords. And notice also in verse 1, we read that he's wearing a royal robe, and the train of his robe wraps round and around and around and fills the temple. I mean, isn't that an amazing image? This royal king on his throne, high and exalted, wearing a robe whose train fills the entire temple. Now, what would be the, 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 the symbolism there? What would that signify? And I, I think we're helped by thinking of another situation that is a little bit parallel to this. Here it is. I recall many years ago, Jody and I were living actually in Pasadena, California at the time. And, uh, and, and before we went to bed this night, Jody said to me, she said, Bruce, do you want me to wake you up at 3 a.m. so you can watch the wedding with me? And I said, no, thank you, dear. Uh, I'll just sleep and, and uh, enjoy my rest. And, and uh, when I wake up in the morning, you can tell me about the wedding. Well, at about 5 o'clock, there was something on the television screen that was so amazing, she could not stand watching it by herself any longer. And so she came rushing in the bedroom, roused me from my sleep, and she said, Bruce, you've got to come and look. And I will never forget, walked out into the living room, my eyes landed on the television screen, just in time to see Lady Diana walking down the center aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and the train of her wedding gown seemed to trail on endlessly behind her. Do so some of you remember that scene? I bet you do. I do. Now, here's the question. Why such a long train to that wedding gown for that bride on that occasion? Answer? Splendor. Majesty royalty, beauty, authority. You see it? So indeed, transfer now back to Isaiah 6. The train of his robe fills the temple. No greater splendor, no greater majesty, no greater glory or power or authority is found anywhere else than in this king. So indeed, what an amazing scene Isaiah sees. Now, one more detail in verse 1 before we move on. It's worth looking at. Notice that he is a king sitting on a throne chair, and so you would expect that throne chair to be situated in what sort of a building? What would be appropriate for a king to be seated in? The temp the, 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 uh, a palace, right? He's seated in a palace. But notice at the end of verse 1, the train of his robe filled the temple. So indeed, here we have a picture of a king priest. Isn't that something? And the irony with Uzziah is so striking because Uzziah is judged by God for attempting to be a king priest. And yet here, this exalted one is exactly that, a king priest. Well, who could this be? Remember the two lines, one from the tribe of Judah, one from the line of Levi? Well, here is a king we find out in the New Testament. You know who I'm talking about. This is obviously a vision of the second person of the Trinity who becomes Jesus of Nazareth. And he is from the line of David. The angel Gabriel makes that clear to Mary. He, he, he will sit on the throne of David forever and ever, he tells her, uh, as he announces that she will be the mother of the Messiah in Luke chapter 1. But then his priesthood is not from Levi, is it? 
Thank you, book of Hebrews. We understand that his priesthood is, is based upon the order of Melchizedek, who is greater than Levi, as Hebrews develops that in Hebrews chapter 7. So indeed, here it is, a vision of the one whom we know of as Jesus the Christ. The pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity on the throne, seated, reigning over the world. Now, verse 2 we are, we're introduced to some others who are there. Seraphim, we read, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. <coughs> so here are these glorious angelic creatures, these powerful, majestic, sinless creatures who are before the throne, hovering calling out worship to the Lord. And notice it says in verse 2 that they have six wings, but with two of those wings, they cover their faces. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you think of it, these are sinless creatures. They're, they're not, it's not as though they, they feel sinful in the presence of God, but rather, even as sinless creatures, they understand the, the infinite splendor that is God's that they cannot look upon rightly. And so indeed they cover their eyes. But then it also says with two of their wings, they cover their feet. Now this is an interesting one. I've looked at commentaries. They don't help on this. So here, here's my thought. And that is, it's obviously uh, a situation of worship. There's no doubt about that. They are worshiping this king. We can see that from verse 3. So the, 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 the question is, why would they cover their feet? Well, in the Old Testament, worship is often done through a posture of bowing before God. You bow in worship. So how do you fly and hover and sing and the same time bow in worship? Answer, you have two extra wings that you can put in a bowing posture, covering your feet, indicating your humility, your reverence, your honor to this one that you worship. And then, to, with two of the wings, they fly, and they call back and forth, verse 3, to one another in this antiphonal refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, let's pause for a moment here and think why they would call out holy, holy, holy. You know, the holiness of God, rightly understood, really refers to what might be thought of as the godness of God. What constitutes God as God is captured in the holiness of God. The root meaning of holy is to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different from all else, to be separate. So the separateness of God is highlighted. And we can see this in who God is in himself, in his very being. You know, in the book of Isaiah, oftentimes we come across this phrase, I am God and there is no one like me, right? Do you hear holiness there? I'm separate. I'm distinct. There's no one comparable to who I am. I am God and there is no one besides me. I alone am God. So the incomparability of God, the exclusivity of God establishes the godness of God, and this is what is captured in the word holy. You know, and when you think about it, we can think easily of some ways in which God is distinct from all else that exists. For example, God alone is creator. Everything else is created, right, by him. 
And, and, and likewise, God alone is eternal. But everything else is temporal. Made by him at some point in time and sustained for whatever duration he chooses for it. Uh, God alone is infinite. Infinite meaning no boundary, no limitation to the fullness of his being. But we are very definitely finite, right? We are limited. We, we are restricted. I mean, we all know this. Our, our knowledge, our, our power, our, our lifespan. I mean, there's limitations we face that God does not face. So indeed, the holiness of God establishes God in himself as distinct from everything else that exists. But there's another aspect of holiness besides what might be thought of here as the metaphysical perfection, metaphysical separateness of God. That is the separateness of God in his being. And that is the moral separateness of God. The moral separateness that he is morally perfectly pure and sinless. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute, aren't the seraph who are calling out holy, 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 aren't they sinless and pure? And the answer is, yes, they are. In fact, this puzzled me for some time, uh, many years ago, and I wondered why the seraph didn't choose to call out something that they were not, but God was, like self-existent, self-existent, self-existent. You know, why, why not pick something that is true of God alone that would not be true of them at all? But they don't do that. They pick out holy, again, because it reflects more, more uh, centrally than any other attribute the, the distinctiveness of, as, of God as God. So even here at the moral level, God is distinct from the seraph. Yes, true enough, they're both sinless. God and the seraph are both sinless. But in contrast with God, the seraph, though they have never sinned, they could sin, right? How do we know that? How do we know these angelic beings could sin? Because some did. Goodness, the, the fall of Satan <clears throat> from heaven and the, the demons who came with him, these are all angelic beings who sinned against God. So yes, uh, they, they have not sinned, but it's possible for them to sin. And so God holds them in their sinlessness. I think this is what the Bible refers to when it speaks of the elect angels. God chooses to hold them in their sinlessness, but their, their sinless <clears throat> life, moment by moment and day by day, is contingent upon what God does in them, holding them as sinless. <clears throat> but God himself absolutely sinless. He, he not only is sinless, he must be sinless. He is perfectly pure and sinless in all of his being. And so he cannot sin, unlike the seraphim. So in both ways, both the metaphysical, metaphysical greatness and glory of God in his being, separate from all else, and the moral purity of God in, in his own life and moral nature, separate from all else, being perfectly infinitely holy. So indeed, he is holy. He is God. And there is no one like him. There's no other besides him. Now, why three times? Why holy, holy, holy? Well, I don't think it's the Trinity. You know, some people have thought that Father, Son, and Spirit. It would make sense if it weren't for the context because the one who is worshipped here is the second person of the Trinity. So I don't think this is referring to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here's another idea that I think explains it. <clears throat> In the Hebrew language... The way that you express a superlative, the, the best or the greatest or the, the most, is with a single repetition of a term. So in your Hebrew Bible, you might come across king, king. 
We translate that as either king of kings or greatest king, right? You hear that superlative? And we know it is a superlative because of the single repetition of the term. Lord, Lord, Lord of lords, greatest Lord. But here we have the only time in the Hebrew Bible with a double repetition. Holy, holy, holy. Indicating, I think, that human language is too constrained, unable to express the glorious, infinite fullness of the holiness of God. We cannot put in human language adequately just how holy God is. So grammar is violated in order to try to give expression to the infinite, perfect holiness of God. So indeed, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And now notice two more details in verse 4 about this scene that Isaiah sees. In verse 4 we read, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now notice the foundation stones of this giant, massive temple building are trembling. Now, some of you, like me, I'm sure, have been to some loud concerts in your life. I regret a couple of those that I went to. I'm sure my hearing is not what it would have been had I not gone. But in any case, I've been to some loud concerts where, you know, standing against the wall, you can feel that wall vibrate or hear the windows rattle. But that's one thing. Can you imagine being in a place a massive temple building where it's not the walls trembling and the windows rattling, the foundation stones tremble at the voice of him who calls out. Isn't that amazing? And what does that convey? Well, it conveys two things. One, the worshipers, the seraph, are giving everything they have, every fiber of their being is being expressed in worship. The intensity and the volume is so incredible. It's shaking the very foundation stones. But why are they worshiping like that? Because of the worthiness of the one they are worshiping. You see it, don't you? You realize, yes, God alone is worthy of receiving that level of intense worship. It's a little hint, a little glimpse into what worship will be in heaven for us someday. Can you believe that we will be able to experience that at some point? And it's also instructive to what worship here ought to be more so, right? Less inhibitions, more expression of the greatness and the glory of God even now. And then one other detail in verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And you wonder, what is this smoke? And why are we told about smoke that's filling the temple? Well, uh, commentators do help on this point. They do note that in a number of cases in the Old Testament, when the glory of God is manifest, smoke is present. So, for example, one of the most beautiful examples of this is at Mount Sinai. Uh, when uh, Moses ascends and meets God at the top of the mountain, receives the law of the Lord from God, it, it says that the top of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. So indeed, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the, the greatness and beauty of God, uh, the, the law of the Lord, the justice of God uh, is, is all signified by that smoke. But I think in this passage, there is another, another part to this uh, that uh, ne needs to be brought in. 
you'll notice that there is something else in this temple building we haven't read about yet that we're about to come across in the verses that follow. So let your eyes scan down a couple verses and do you see something that's in this temple that would, that would emit smoke? Do you see it? There's an altar, right? Do you see that? And an altar with what? With burning coals. And those burning coals obviously would emit smoke. Now here's my idea. Is that obviously, we'll, we'll see this in just a moment, that God commissions a seraph to take one of those burning coals and to touch Isaiah's lips with it by which he is purified. So I think that those burning coals in the altar and the smoke that fills the temple is not only a a, uh, uh, it, it not only signifies uh, and is a symbol of the majesty of God, but in particular, it's a symbol of the moral purity of God. That God cannot abide sin. And of course, that's the last detail mentioned to us before we hear Isaiah cry out, Woe is me! I am ruined! And so I, I believe that smoke is a, is a symbol of the absolute perfect holiness, sinlessness, purity of God, that God cannot have in his presence those who have sin. And so indeed, we move then to verse 5 with Isaiah's response. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice three things with me quickly in verse 5. Number one, notice that Isaiah does not say, woe is me, for you know what? I've got a few problems. I got a couple things to work out. Yeah, there's some issues, but uh, you know, where's that self-help section in Barnes & Noble? I think I can find a book there that will help me solve this problem. He does not say that. He says, woe is me, I am ruined. The, the word there indicates devastated. You know, he, he is hopeless and helpless. He is undone. So indeed, Isaiah realizes when he sees the majesty, the glory, the greatness, the beauty, the splendor, the sinless perfection of God, he is hopeless before him. He is so thoroughly unworthy, and he now gets it. He sees it. He understands who he is before this God, that he has no right to be in his presence in his sin. But secondly, notice that it's not only Isaiah. He understands this is true for all of us. We're all in the very same boat, as it were. So he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, sometimes we play these games with each other. You know, I, I'm better than she is. You know, I, at least, you know, I've, I, I'm not doing those kinds of things. Or, or oh, woe is me, I, I, I'm, I'm not nearly as, as, as kind and generous as he is. And so we play these games of kind of relative degrees of sinfulness among us. But when we see the Lord, the contrast is so great, it levels all of us. There's no point to comparison at the human level anymore, is there? We are all on our faces, destitute, hopeless, helpless. Third thing, how did Isaiah see this? How was he able to understand the enormity of his own sinfulness? Answer, end of verse 5, for my eyes have seen the king 
the Lord of hosts. We don't get it. We don't understand the, the, the gravity of our sin, the horror of our, of our own impurity until we see the greatness and the glory, the majesty and the fullness of the purity and sinfulness of God, sinlessness of God. So indeed, we have to see God for who he is in order to understand ourselves for who we are. Uh, God help us, because in so many churches across this land, it's not true here, but in many others, they don't, they're not exposed to the holiness of God, the greatness of his majesty and, 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 and his glory, because it might make us feel little before him. But you know what? That's the point, isn't it? To feel little and unworthy, and then to experience, ah, what comes next? It's amazing, isn't it? As we move on to verse 6. We move now into the imminent mercy of God. But I want to say one thing before we talk about this. And that is, moving now into the imminent mercy of God, we realize that we're talking about something that God has done that he need not have done. There's no obligation for God to do what comes next. Remember in Romans chapter 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the fact that God shows mercy to Isaiah, our jaws should drop. We should look up and say, could it be that God being who you are, the glorious, perfect, sinless God that you are, should deem it good and right to show mercy to the likes of us? Indeed, this is what God does. So in verse 6 and 7, we read this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Notice first that this is initiated by God. This is not something that Isaiah prompted or that he could bring about. He's on his, on his face on the ground, realizing he is hopeless, but God sends the seraph to show mercy to Isaiah that he does not deserve. And notice that the means of mercy touching his lips, do you see that? Is personalized forgiveness. Now here's why I say that. Because back in verse 5, Isaiah had said, Woe is me, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, right? Now, we're not told why he said that. Uh, my, my hunch is he knows what is taught in both testaments, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he realized his lips betray a wicked heart. But we're not told exactly why. He could have said, I'm a man of unclean hands. I'm a, a man of unclean feet. I mean, all of those would have been true. But what he did say is, I am a man of unclean lips. So God sends the seraph to go and touch Isaiah's lips. Here's the meaning of that. God has forgiveness for Isaiah that matches his sin. You know, when, when Christ died on the cross for us, as we're told in 1 Peter 2, he bore our sin in his body on the cross. When he did that, he didn't take on himself some abstract concept of sin. He took on the very sins we have done. Those times we lied to another person. The times we were petty and jealous 
uh, times when we felt revenge toward another. I mean, all of the sins we have committed, he took upon himself when he died. So when forgiveness comes to us, guess what? The forgiveness matches exactly the sins that we have done. And there may be someone here today who says, oh, but he couldn't forgive me because my sins are too many, too, too, too great for him to forgive. Oh, no. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So indeed, his grace, his mercy can meet your sin as you put your faith in Christ and trust in him to be your savior. You can know your personal sin is paid for by Christ. And finally, notice the goal of this mercy that is extended to Isaiah is not only his forgiveness. Of course, that's what's highlighted here. But then look on to verse 8. After his forgiveness is extended, then we read this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So the goal that God has is not only his forgiveness, but his restoration to service. I mean, I find this astonishing that God's attitude toward Isaiah is not, okay, Isaiah, I've forgiven your sin. I, I've, I've dealt with all of that. Now just get out of my sight and don't do it again. Don't be a problem to me anymore. You know, he doesn't do that. Instead, it's, Isaiah, come here. I want you to be involved in my work I mean, to, to think of the mercy of God, not only in the forgiveness of our sins and our salvation, but the mercy of God manifest in calling us into the most important work there is to do. And that is his work in building his kingdom. And by that, I don't have in mind, just to be clear about this, just the work that your pastor and I and people in sort of professional Christian ministry do. I have in mind every Christian. You know from Ephesians 4 that we're told, <clears throat> told that those professional type people are, are to equip the members of the church for the work of service, for the work of ministry. You are the ministers of this church, rightly understood, as, as those who belong to Christ. If you are a believer, you are gifted by the Spirit to be involved in ministry. And here's the thing. I think when some people think of ministry or think of serving the Lord, words like this come to their minds. Duty, responsibility, obligation, or even, even maybe drudgery, difficulty, opposition. And you know, all of those things may be true at some time in Christian service, but you're missing it. Here's the word that ought to come first and foremost to our minds when we think of Christian service or Christian ministry. It is the word privilege privilege. Can you believe it? That God not only saves us, but then calls us to be involved in his work. It's incredible. I mean, you know, I, I loved sports when I was growing up, but you can tell from my size, I didn't get involved in it a lot. You know, I sat on the bench a lot. <coughs> but I remember those occasions, not many of them, but I remember those occasions when I would hear the coach say, where in the game? <gasps> You're kidding I get to play? I mean, you just realize, wow, the privilege of being in the game. This is what God calls us to. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? And, and you think how much he cares about the, the, work, the, the work that he's designed, that he would let the likes of us get involved in it? 
amazing grace in our salvation, but then in the service that he calls us to. Oh my, what an amazing God. Well, what is it that leads then to such willing service in verse 8? Here am I, send me from Isaiah. And the answer is this, he knows God. He knows the greatness, the glory, the majesty, the sinless perfection, the holiness of God. And yet he has experienced from that same God mercy, forgiveness, kindness, compassion, calling into service. And so what is his heart's response? Here am I, send me. His willing service comes from this knowledge of the greatness, the glory, and the goodness, and the kindness of God. And then what will enable him to persevere? You know, in verses 9 to 13, we won't take time to read those right now, but they are sobering verses. I mean, Isaiah is called to speak the word of the Lord, to be a prophet of the Lord, to people who will despise what he says. It's amazing. You know, no pats on the back. Thank you, Pastor. Slaps in the face. They, they, they will ridicule him. They will reject him. And yet, for year after year after year, he perseveres in speaking the word of the Lord as God calls him to. Now, by, by the way, you might wonder why God would call him to speak to a people whom God says will reject him. And the answer is this. Their rejection is a testimony of the justice of God in bringing judgment against them. When that judgment comes, you have rejected my prophets, the Lord will say. So, here is Isaiah to be one of those prophets who speaks the word of the Lord faithfully as he does, knowing they will hate what he says. What can sustain a person with such a ministry when people do not appreciate what you're doing, but you're doing the Lord's work? And the answer is, you're, you're doing it because of who God is. You know him. You've seen him. You've, you've understood his greatness. You've seen the Lord on his throne, lofty and exalted. You've seen the train of his robe filling the temple. You've seen seraphim worshiping him, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And yet you know that God has shown his compassion to you, his forgiveness to you. And so indeed the whole of your life, you long to live for his glory. Now, my friends, as we bring this to a close this morning, it just strikes me that we, we need to remember the greatest manifestation of the mercy of God to unworthy sinners that has ever been expressed. Really, that this passage points forward to, and that is the gift by the Father of His own Son who would come and live the perfect life we were supposed to live but failed to live, and then die a death on a cross. We deserve to die, but he died in our place, substituting himself for us, that he might bear our sin and take our place in receiving the judgment of his Father that if we had received it would mean everlasting judgment, everlasting condemnation from God. But Christ took that sin upon himself that by faith we might enter into forgiveness and fullness of life in the service of, in the presence of, and the joy of this great saving God. So my friends, if you have not trusted in Christ this morning, you need to know Jesus made this clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It sounds exclusive, doesn't it? And it is. It is. Jesus is the only Savior. 
But there is a Savior. I mean, praise be to God that he didn't leave us in our sin, hopeless and helpless, because that's who we are in ourselves. He has provided for us the pathway to enter into forgiveness and through that to enter into life at its best. Life of meaning, life of significance, life of satisfaction, and life of service to the Lord. So my friends, if you don't know Christ, come to him today and, and, and experience the forgiveness by putting faith in him. But those of us who do know Christ are, are in the family of God. I encourage you, as you read the Bible, you encounter uh, teaching about God here at this uh, wonderful church, that you will grow in your understanding of the greatness, the glory, the majesty, the transcendence of God, that you might appreciate more fully the amazing fact that God has shown his love and kindness to us in his son and wants to bring to us fullness of joy as we devote ourselves fully to him in faith and trust and in service. What a great God, worthy of our worship and a glory to be his people. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for the joy it has been just to reflect a bit this morning on your greatness, on your fullness of life and, and, and the, the infinite qualities that are yours. And then to marvel, Lord, that you being the great God that you are has deemed it good and right to come to us unworthy sinners and show us such compassion, such kindness. Help us, Lord, all to see you better that we may live more for your glory. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.